Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Well, there I was in the middle of uh, a wonderful dream, fast asleep, dead to the world. Uh, I had gone to bed that night uh, a little more tired than normal and uh, was sleeping like a baby. And all of a sudden, I was jolted wide awake, eyes wide open, one second completely asleep, the next moment as awake as I've ever been in my entire life. Every phone in our house was screaming at us. I'm sure I'm not uh, alone in that experience, right? Uh, Wednesday night, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.15 or so, I went from dead asleep to wide awake, wondering what in the world was happening. And of course, uh, our phones were saying that they had seen tornadoes, and those tornadoes were on the way, and we should protect ourselves, get in the basement, and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, we did, uh, most of us anyway. I stayed upstairs and watched out the window, watched the the storm rolling in. Turned out it was obviously uh, nothing more really than, a, than a, a nice light show. Lots of lightning, very little wind or anything. But those weather people, they know how to get your attention, right? Those phones were screaming. They must have a frequency. It's like this is the frequency that will annoy people to death, wake them out of uh, the deadest sleep. And so we popped right up. And it woke us up. We watched for what was coming, and we took action. And this is what God calls his church to do, to be awake, to be watchful, and to take action. Spencer, several weeks ago, started a series, uh, a sermon series on the state of the church. And if you remember the first week, he talked about the need for the church to be physically present with one another versus virtual presence. Virtual presence cannot substitute for the church being together. And the second week, he talked about safety and the priority of worship over even uh, our our own human physical safety. Today, I'm going to continue that sermon series on the state of the church, and I want to talk about the family and the family of God. We want to talk a little bit today about family and gender and the church. And when it comes to our culture's understanding of family and gender and sexuality, the weather is bad, right? The weather out there is bad. We have a lot to watch out for, and we need to be awake. And there's far too much to say about this topic than we can possibly cover in one sermon. There's a lot we can't cover, but when we talk about the state of the church, when we talk about the state of the church, it's important that we talk about the state of the family. And I think this is important for a few reasons. First of all, the Bible says that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul says that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the one place where we should be able to find out the truth about Issues like marriage, marriage and gender and so forth. Our culture is confused. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There's outright hostility against God's pattern. And we know 
that confusion out there will eventually lead to confusion in here if we aren't diligent to hold fast to the truth. You know, today there's not just uh, competing visions of the truth. There's actually competing visions for how to define the truth, right? We live in a culture that has decided to define truth based on feelings and emotions. If someone says, I feel this way, they are saying, this is truth to me, and that has now uh, come to mean this is truth, period, right? Whatever I feel becomes my truth. But the church of Jesus Christ is founded not on subjective feelings, but on objective truths. There really is a God in heaven. He really did design his creation to function in a certain way. And wishing him away or wishing he was different than he was or wishing that his pattern and his purpose and his creative design was different than it is won't change the facts. So it's important that we talk about this because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We should be the place where the world can find what God has said. Another reason this is important is because ultimately it is a gospel issue. Ultimately, it is a gospel issue. A church who lets go of a biblical understanding of gender and sexuality will eventually let go of the gospel. Once you deny biblical authority in any area, you are on the path to denying biblical authority in every area, right? Once you, have, once you have decided that there's a particular area that the Bible is not authoritative in anymore, you are now on the trajectory to saying any particular area, every particular area, the Bible no longer speaks with authority in those areas. You know, churches, I think churches abandon Christ the same way individual Christians do. Someone who is an apostate Christian did not wake up one morning and decide they disagreed with the doctrine of the Trinity. That, that rarely happens. A person decides based on cultural pressure, based on trends and whatever else is happening, that there's a particular issue of morality, biblical morality that they don't like to hold on to. And they give up in that area. And that's where the doubts begin. After abandoning biblical morality, eventually the gospel itself is abandoned. And the same thing happens with churches. It's unpopular to hold to a certain viewpoint about, for example, family and gender and sexuality. And so the first compromise is on that cultural issue. It starts there. And then once biblical authority is undermined, it's not long before the whole gospel message is abandoned. I have books uh, on my bookshelf right there in my office written by pastors who are really good stuff, really helpful stuff, really doctrinally solid stuff, who then went on later to renounce not just their positions in those books, but to renounce Christ himself. And it didn't start with the gospel, it started with uh, letting go of these cultural issues. And so all of this ties back to the gospel. 
A third reason I think is very important for us in the church to talk about this is because the church, the church is the family of God, right? We're not going to get relationships right in the church if we haven't understood how to get relationships right at home. You know, the most frequent designation for Christians in the New Testament is the term brothers or brothers and sisters. So the New Testament defines this as a family, and we can't do church right if we don't understand some foundational truths about human families. The New Testament teaches us to treat older men in the church as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters. So we need to know how to relate to one another uh, in these terms. And it, it, just as a reminder, I mean, our, our, the, the name of our church is Racine Bible Church, but I don't want it to be assumed uh, that automatically anything that is said from, from this pulpit or from our ABS or anything that's spoken about in this building is automatically from Scripture. We need to make sure that whatever we're saying is grounded in the Word of God. It's only the Bible that will give us the correct perspective on these things. And if we're grounding our, our, our beliefs in these things in Scripture, then that means we're married to the text and not to tradition. We're married to the text and not to tradition. It's really easy uh, to, to sometimes fall into this way of thinking that, well, I want it to be the way it used to be. Well, many of the ways it used to be are more biblical than it is today, right? It used to be assumed that uh, a marriage was defined as between a man and a woman. That's... That is traditional, and that is also biblical. But there are some traditions uh, that sometimes Christians hold to that don't have biblical moorings. It used to be tradition that marriage could only be between two people who had the same skin color. That's not a biblical tradition. That has no grounding in scripture. So we're married to the text, not to tradition. And being grounded in scripture means we, we, uh, we, we're focused on conviction and not conformity. Conviction and not conformity. We can't left, let the, uh, the shifting sands of our culture allow us to be shifting sands. God has spoken in his word and the message is clear. You know, there's no, there's no new research that'll come out from... Oxford or Harvard or Berkeley or whatever. There's no new research that can come out that will somehow undermine what God has already said. He has spoken, and he has spoken clearly. And what we need to do is hold on to it. We can't be intimidated into conformity to the world. It also means mercy and not judgment. To believe what the Bible says about family and gender means we hold fast to the truth with grace and mercy for lost sinners. We don't need more angry Christians. There are plenty of those out there, right? We need Christians who hold fast to the truth with humility and love and joy. We need to fight, but we need to fight with smiles on our faces and love in our hearts, right? We need to remember that uh, our enemy is not other human beings. Our enemy is the prince of the powers of the air. We know as believers that confusion about these things is really just a symptom 
of a much bigger problem, a spiritual problem. When we have denied the creator, then we open ourselves up to all kinds of confusion. There are no norms, there's no standards, no plan, no purpose. And so it makes sense that things really aren't working out. So this morning, we're gonna look at a few issues surrounding a biblical view of the family. And we're going to do that primarily from the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis. Should not be that difficult to find. It is the first book. Uh, The word Genesis means beginnings, and that's where we need to start. In the book of Genesis... And we're going to talk about five truths about family and gender for the church to hold on to. Five truths. The first is that God created men and women equal in status before him. God created men and women equal in status before him. We're going to start Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. Verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You look back up at verse 27, the word man there in verse 27, so God created man. That's the term being used, uh, the general term for human. And that's made clear later in the verse when he says male and female, he created them. So the Bible teaches from the very start that men and women are both created in God's image. God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. The woman is not somehow less of an image bearer than the man, or vice versa. Men and women, equally image bearers, both represent God on earth. Verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them. So this mandate to go out and rule the earth was given to man and woman both. And verse 31, as we saw, God saw what he had made, and he saw man as male and female, and he said not just that it was good, but that it was very good. You know, it's interesting. There's a substantial amount of time that passes on day six between the creation of the man, the male, and the female. 
We know that from Genesis chapter two, that a number of events happened between God creating Adam and God creating Eve. But it wasn't until Eve had been created, it wasn't until the end of the day, after the woman had been created, that God says it was very good. God made humans to be like him in significant ways. There are aspects of our character and our intellect that reflect the character and the intellect of God. And God made us to be like him in the sense he made us to rule over the world he has created. And this is true for man and and woman both. You know, God himself, let's be really clear here, God himself is neither male nor female. Now, every time God reveals himself to us in in his word, it's always he, not she, right? It's always father, not mother. So he reveals himself in masculine uh, characteristics. But he's not male in the same way a human being is male. He's neither male nor female in that sense. So maleness isn't considered of, of higher worth in scripture than femaleness. Both man and woman made in the image of God. Together they exercise dominion. Together they glorify God. Together they multiply and fill the earth and subdue it with their labor and their creativity. Many, many cultures throughout history have treated women poorly. But for those of us who are in Christ, we recognize the dignity and the value of women. Jesus gave dignity to women. There were women among his closest followers. One of only two people we ever commended for having great faith was a Canaanite woman. You read through the New Testament and you see that Christianity embraced the role of women in the spread of the gospel. God created men and women equal in status before him. And number two, Our second truth is that God created men and women to be distinct, to be distinct, and their differences are good. Their differences are good. To be equal in essence and worth is not the same as being the same, right? Male and female, he created them. He didn't create one, he created two, and he did so for good reasons. Genesis chapter two is a retelling of the sixth day of creation with more details. In Genesis one, we read that God created man and woman. In Genesis two, we read how God created man and woman. And the way he created them, how he created them has implications for how we think of the differences between the sexes. Genesis two, verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God had created man out of the ground. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Pause right there for a moment. 
God already knew it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. He needed to figure out it wasn't good for him to be alone. And this is what happens as he names the animals. For Adam, not a helper found fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up his place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God created man out of the ground and God created woman from the man. They're created using different processes. That's even reflected in the Hebrew words themselves. Man is ish and woman is isha from man. It's actually reflected, isn't it? In our own English, man and woe man, right? From man. Though they're both created in God's image, they had different roles. Adam to tend the earth from which he was created and woman to assist the man from which she was created. We see this difference even in what happens in verse 23. Man is given the responsibility to name the woman. He exercises authority in their relationship. Men and women are, are different from their very creation, and that's not something to be embarrassed about or to apologize for or to try to, to neutralize. Physical and emotional and psychological differences between men and women are part of God's good created order. It's kind of odd that I have to say that, right? It's kind of odd that we have to make that statement, and yet we do. And it's significant this is the only differentiation mentioned in the creation story. You know that? God could have made a group of people over here with really dark skin and people over here with a little lighter skin and people over here with even lighter. He could have differentiated in any number of different ways. Those differences are, are just our cultural way of looking at things. They're not grounded in scripture. The one differentiation mentioned in scripture is man and woman, man and woman. And this distinction in man and woman pushes right down into how men and women act, how they dress, how they conduct themselves. And the New Testament reinforces that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, culturally couched, right? It should be uh, appropriate to the culture, but Men and women are supposed to look different. First Timothy chapter two, Paul says in the church, men and women have different roles. Ephesians chapter five, Paul says in the home, men and women have different roles. If I could, I just wanna take a moment uh, to commend to you an organization called the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, CBMW. Um, this council put together a statement a few years ago called the Nashville statement. And uh, we'll try to get that up on the website at some point in time. But this Nashville statement expresses particular truths about human gender that really uh, are under attack today. And I, I just want to read a couple of articles, a couple of the articles from that statement. Article three, we affirm that God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings in his own image, equal before God as persons and distinct as male and female. We deny that the divinely ordained differences between male and female render them unequal in dignity or worth. 
Article four, we affirm that divinely ordained differences between male and female reflect God's original creation design and are meant for human good and human flourishing. We deny that such differences are a result of the fall or a tragedy to be overcome. The differences between men and women are to be embraced rather than rejected. Sin hasn't caused the differences. The fall into sin means that men and women have a tendency to corrupt our God-given differences. You see this even in Adam, right? So when his wife was uh, falling prey to temptation in the garden, he, he sinned by passively abandoning his role as leader. Later, when God pronounces the curse on the man and woman, look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Men have a tendency to sin in one of two ways uh, in relationships with women, either by neglecting their role as leaders or abusing their role as leaders. And Adam did both. Adam did both. And sin, of course, doesn't just corrupt men's approach to leadership. It has, it's affected the feminine response to male leadership, typically by a desire to usurp it. And you see that there, right there in uh, verse 16 as well, chapter three, verse 16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. You're gonna wanna fight against his leadership. In our day, not only are, are these creation distinctions between men and women being ignored, the very nature of what it means to be a man or a woman is being rejected, right? But it's God who assigns a person's gender, and he doesn't get it wrong. He doesn't get it wrong. And it's unfortunate that today there, there are those who are fighting against their own identity as male and female. And we know from Romans chapter one that sin has corrupted all the way down to the level of the heart desires, right? So there are those who have decided they don't want to be the gender God has assigned them. And we as believers need to respond with grace and compassion and mercy, but also maintain God's design is always right. To fight against God's creative purpose is an exercise in vanity. What is necessary for someone is to receive the new birth because that's when our desires are reordered. We no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to one another. In Christ, a man can embrace what it means to be a man because he's no longer enslaved to his fleshly desires. And in Christ, a woman can embrace what it means to be a woman because she's no longer enslaved to her fallen desires. Truth number three. Truth number three. God created earthly marriage to reflect heavenly realities. God created earthly marriage to reflect heavenly realities. Chapter two, verse 24 of Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you've heard this verse quoted, especially if you've been to a Christian wedding. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be one flesh? Well, obviously, it can't be taken literally. 
I'm standing right here and my wife is sitting over there. We're not one flesh literally, obviously. It doesn't even mean that we're of one mind. How much we wish we were always of one mind, right? That would be glorious. Uh, but we are not. Sometimes that can be frustrating, but we're individual people. It doesn't mean necessarily psychologically, spiritually. What does it mean? It's a sort of mysterious thing. What does it mean that in, in a marriage, husband and wife are one flesh? It is a mysterious thing. That's exactly the point. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 quotes from Genesis 2.24. And he says, this is a mystery. Yeah, Paul, we get it. It's a mystery. I don't understand it. He says, but I'm speaking about Christ in the church. So Paul, for us, in Ephesians chapter 5, interprets Genesis 2.24. For thousands of years, we haven't quite understood what Genesis 2.24 was about, and now we do. It's about Christ and the church. Marriage has many good purposes in society, in our culture, physical purposes, emotional, relational, all of those things. But its ultimate purpose, no matter who the couple is, is that in the merging of two very distinct and complementary lives, we get a glimpse of this reality of Christ and his union with the church. So marriage requires, by definition, two people who are not the same, but opposites, male and female, man and woman, head and helper, masculine and feminine, Christ and the church. Marriage can ever only be between one man and one woman, not just because God's law says that same-sex romantic relationships are sin, though they are, not just because those relationships break God's commands, but because God's law points us to something greater. To redefine marriage in any way is to give up the very thing marriage was designed to point to. That's why we say the church cannot cave on our view of same-sex marriage without also caving eventually on the gospel. The marriage, a marriage isn't Christ in Christ. It isn't the church in the church. It's Christ in the church. But if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you know what the, the plan and purpose of marriage is. You know what is meant to be put on display in marriage. A man can sacrificially love his wife, love his family, because his goal is to live for one who laid down his life for us. A woman can sacrificially follow her husband because it's, it's her life's goal to live for the one who, who gladly submitted himself all the way to death. This is uh, maybe a good opportunity to do a 30-second commercial. Uh, we have a marriage retreat coming up at the end of October. <laughs> Sign up today. Uh, but this is an opportunity to take a moment to encourage you uh, to sign up for the marriage retreat and have an opportunity to apply biblical truths to our marriages and grow so that we look more like Christ in the church. Truth number four, truth number four, God created sexual expression to be a gift for married people. God created sexual expression to be a gift for married people. I want to talk about two kinds of fences, two kinds of fences. Uh, last summer, uh, our family took advantage of pandemic airline prices, which were crazy low, uh, 10 bucks, we flew our entire family to California. 
And uh, yeah, it was great. And so we visited there and we took one day and we drove through Bel Air and Beverly Hills, you know, kind of the ritzy part of Southern California, saw some amazing homes. We didn't do this, but you can do this. You can stop by these street vendors and buy a, a map, a star map. Uh, or you unfold this thing and you see where all the stars live. And you go try to around, drive around and find their homes, right? It's a complete waste of time. Because if you buy one and you find out some famous person lives here. Let's go find their house. When you get there, you know what you'll see? A wall. You'll see a wall. It turns out if you are famous enough to have a mansion that people actually want to come and see your house, you have enough money to buy a wall so they can't see it. You show up. There's nothing to see. A big fence, a big wall. That's one kind of fence. Let me tell you about another kind of fence. Uh, a few years ago, I was sitting in my office here uh, looking out the window and uh, in our parking lot, we had a couple cows in our parking lot. Uh, I think I was the only pastor in that day. So, of course, I felt like it was my pastoral duty to go out and shepherd these cows, you know, <laughs> spend a little time with them, uh, make sure they didn't get in any trouble. So I went out in the parking lot and just sort of hung out with these cows until a neighbor was able to come over and get them. Cows getting outside the fence is, is not a good thing, right? They could get into trouble. They could get hit on the road. They could eat something they shouldn't eat, so forth. Two kinds of fences. I think it's tempting, especially for you younger Christians and younger believers, to see God's design for sexuality as that first kind of fence, keeping you out from something good. And God's design for sexuality is the second kind of fence keeping you in where it is good. God's design for sexuality within marriage is meant for human good and flourishing. And so he says, keep it within the bonds of marriage. It's not for everyone and it's not for all time, but it is good. And you see this in the narrative of Genesis, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 28. God says, be fruitful and multiply, right? And then over in Genesis 2, we read earlier uh, where Adam says, this is that last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's this joy and openness between the man and the woman and a celebration of the gift that God has given them in each other. There's nothing dirty or shameful about it at all. It's only the fall into sin that has corrupted and perverted this good gift that God has given. And I'm not gonna spend any time elucidating that point because unless you have been living under a rock for the past three decades, you know all the ways our society and our culture has corrupted this gift. Sin ruins sexuality just like it ruins everything else. And thankfully, as believers, we don't live under the enslavement to sin. This is one more area of life that we bring under the lordship of Christ. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the gospel provides forgiveness for sexual sin, but also trains us to put it off. Just a few verses later after that, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Our uh, final truth this morning, our final truth about family and the family of God is that God created humans as the pinnacle of his creation, and so all human life is valuable. God created humans as the pinnacle of his creation, and so all human life is valuable. Human beings have a dignity and a worth that far surpasses all other created beings. Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, where God judged the wicked earth, he kind of renews his covenant with mankind, with Noah. Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We've heard that before. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. As for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God takes human life very, very seriously. All humans are valuable to him. No exceptions. Even the fact that God judges humans tells you they are valuable to him. He doesn't judge the animals. No gender, ethnicity, no skin color, no language, no disability makes anyone more or less valuable to God. And when we deny the reality of a creator, we're left with some form of evolutionism. We're left with some form of the fittest survive, right? Human life is cheapened. And you think about it, what was the very first sin? after the fall that we read about in scripture. Genesis three, the fall into sin. What happens in Genesis chapter four? Well, Bible trivia, it's who? Cain and Abel. The very first sin recorded in scripture after Genesis chapter three is a man killing his brother, taking the life of another human being. And that has continued down to our day. But if God himself was willing to take on human flesh, in order to redeem human flesh. That tells you that humanity is valuable and precious to God. And this is why, as believers, we were always opposed to abortion. It's a destruction of human life. The Bible says that children are a blessing from God. They're to be cherished and stewarded. This is why Christianity is pro-adoption. We've had a few families right here in our own congregation just recently uh, adopting because to be in Christ is to view human life as important and precious. Christians value life from the cradle to the grave. And that has implications for how we view children, how we view orphans, how we view 
widows, how we view those who are dying. They're to be treated with dignity and grace and mercy. So the Bible teaches that God created men and women equal in status before him. God created men and women distinct. The differences are good. God created earthly marriage to reflect heavenly realities. He created sexual expression as a gift within the realm of marriage, and he created human beings as the pinnacle of his creation and so then valuable. Let me give you just three quick bullet points of application. Just really quick, really short. What do you do with this? Number one, believe it. Number one, believe it. Don't cave into the lies of the world. Hold fast to your Bible. It's God's word revealed to us. I promise you, I promise you that one day you'll be glad you held fast to truth because everything out there is just shifting and changing. Number one, believe the truth. Number two, embrace the truth. These things aren't just true, they're good. They're for human flourishing. They're beautiful, they're wonderful. We need to celebrate what God has designed. And number three, so you believe the truth, you embrace the truth, and number three, you beautify the truth. Beautify the truth. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean the, the greatest apologists for a biblical view of gender and family are Christians who live these truths out with joy and gratitude, right? You don't get bonus points for holding, you know, to checking all the right doctrinal boxes and then going home and mistreating your wife. You don't, you don't get, you don't impress the world by saying, well, I, I have a very conservative view on gender and family, but you're miserable about it. Let's show the world that God is wise by being content with his plan and his purpose and his design. And I know that isn't easy. Sin has made a mess of things. But in Christ, we're redeemed from slavery to that corruption and we begin to reverse the curse as we become more and more conformed to God's will for us. And you know, the Bible teaches that one day the creation is gonna be set right. One day, our king is gonna return. Every mountain will be brought low, every valley lifted up, everything that is wrong and, and unholy and evil will be destroyed. And all of these relationships, which right now are tainted with sin, for those of us who are in Christ, those relationships will be purified and sanctified. And one significant characteristic of that day, you know, is that all human marriages will end. All human marriages will end. So. Human relationships are temporary. You know, not only will all human marriage end, but so will all singleness. You know that? All human marriages end and we're married to the Lord Jesus Christ, but all singleness will end because you'll be married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're single and wish you weren't single, you can endure with hope because one day you'll be in a marriage that'll be perfect. And if you're in a marriage right now, that's bad, that's difficult, that's struggling. You can endure and you can endure with hope because one day you'll be in a perfect marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is your eternal family. Family is important, but family isn't ultimate. This, the family of God, is the family that remains forever.
In this, in our human families and in this family, we're called to lay down our lives for one another. We set aside our own preferences, our own egos, our own selfishness for the sake of each other. But when we do that, you know, we're only just sort of dimly, dimly mirroring the one who laid down his life for us. We're only kind of an obscure picture of the beautiful reality of the love of God for us in Christ, because there is one who has come and given of himself all the way to death, even death on the cross. And he's referred to right here in Genesis. Look at verse 15, Genesis 3. God says, I'll put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The one who would crush the serpent's head has come. And by laying down his own life, he defeated sin and death and hell. Now we wait for the day when our king returns. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then we'll join him in eternity and we'll rejoice with the family of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are holy and righteous and good, and we praise and glorify your name today. You you are wise, and your design for human flourishing reflects your wisdom. And yet, Father, we've abandoned wisdom. We've embraced folly. And so forgive us, Lord, for the times when Even us, even us here in this room, we who know and love Christ, uh, for the times when we have forsaken your good and perfect plan and instead pursued our own sinful inclinations. Lord, we know that the biggest danger to our families is not out there in the world. The biggest danger to our families is right here in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so we pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to hold fast to the truth of your word. We pray that the families in this church would put your goodness and your power and your wisdom on display. And we pray that this church would be a place where sinners who have failed in all of these ways can find mercy and grace and forgiveness. We have all fallen short of your glory, Father. And so we thank you for the mercy of Christ on sinners like us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.